for many of us, when we age out of care, we are without support, without a plan, and really without hope. Um, I know that was the case for me. When I aged out of foster care, I was given one month's rent, a coupon book of food stamps, and told, we hope you make it. And it didn't matter if things got hard. I had no one to call. There was no therapy. There was no mentor, nothing. And it was a very, very hard experience. So with my next interview, I'm bringing on somebody who's trying to make that experience easier for foster kids. Now, Kirk was not a foster child himself, but his life has been foster work, um, just really social work. Uh, he's not a nine to five employee. He actually has started his own business, which is life coaching for kids aging out of care. Based out of New Jersey, Kirk has made the foster community his life. He, um, his wife is a former foster youth, as well as his best friend, Ambition the Poet. I think you'll really hear that he's he's earned his stripes when it comes to caring about foster kids. So take a listen and enjoy. Sure. Um, so tell me about yourself and about what sure. you're doing. Yeah. Sure. So my background actually starts um, uh, from teenage years. Um, I had actually met a young man who was in the foster care system. Uh, word company. Um, you know, where he has like books about being a foster child, but he had kind of, when I met him, um, you know, he seemed like a disheveled young man and kind of was like in and out and I kind of saw something was wrong and it was like, all right, well, let's get together. Let's talk. And then one day he felt comfortable enough to tell me his story and his um, journey. And I was just like, wow, what, you know, like that's, that's amazing. And so, you know, him and I obviously, you know, fast forwarding 20 some odd years, and, you know, I've watched him blossom into this amazing young man. And uh, my wife actually also was in what we call the children's system of care. And I met her around the same age in the same neighborhood. Um, and it kind of just said something at a young age to me. It was like, you know, I have to do something, you know, like my career path needs to be surrounding helping people like this because there's too many people that just aren't spoken for uh, you know, and really don't have any choices in their future. They're kind of dictated on a day-to-day -day what to do. Um, my mother was a social worker, and so it, it was a perfect niche to kind of, uh, you know, get involved in. So my first job straight out of, uh, out of college was working at the State Department um, for DHS, which would be like a Department of kind of Human Services. In the state of New Jersey, we call it uh, DCPMP for the Division of Children and Protection and Permanency. Um, so I started working there. Um, my career uh, flourished from that point on. I, I was promoted into a court division where I was actually five uh, years, um, you know, working within the court system. And it was a, a great opportunity to, to shake hands with senators, to shake hands with other uh, legislators and different things of that nature and kind of push, um, you know, state agendas, which was phenomenal. What we call CMO, I'm not sure how they might uh, label it or, um, in, in Seattle or in the Washington area, but basically what it is, is it's a care management organization. Um, the, state, um, the state of New Jersey, they have subcontracted their mental and behavioral health aspect out to nonprofits organizations so that that way there's no conflict of interest. Um, and so they each county and municipality or Visnage rather, it's actually in Visnages. Every Visnage in the state, there's 15 
has okay. their own CMO or mental and behavioral health office. Um, so I became a court liaison for that office, obviously, since I had the experience with the courts um, and different things in that nature. And so I worked there, you know, moved the ranks up, got a chance to meet some other phenomenal, great people. Um, and then after a while, I was like, you want to know what? I have spent the younger, you know, part of my 20s, my early 30s, um, wearing a suit, you know, I've been a suit and tie every day. I've been, you know, in front of every judge, every, I have not worked the ground. I have not been, you know, an actual worker in a facility, in a home. And so I actually started off as a pilot, um, to gain that experience, would leave the courthouse, you know, at whatever time of day, and then would go and work at a, um, that actual group home or like a residential setting. And believe it or not, I fell in love with it. Being able to be one-on-one with the youth, being able to see their aspirations, see them walk into the door one way and get a a plethora of services and then be able to transition on to just a completely different way of life than what they had come in, um, inspired me, believe it or not, to chuck my suits aside um, and say, you want to know what, this is what I want to do with the rest of my career. Um, obviously when I started off there, I was in kind of like a, a, a small counselor position, you know, just kind of aiding. Um, but when my supervisor heard that I was ready to put my suit, atti- suit aside and, you know, kind of, you know, get into that, I quickly was moved up. Um, you know, I think that it only took six months and I was, you know, running my own platforms and my own division and supervising probably at that time anywhere from 50 to 75 staff. Um, fast forward nine, 10 years later, um, I'm still running and training other directors across the state of New Jersey. I'm a certified um, nurtured heart coach. I'm a certified, uh, I can't even tell you how many certifications. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have it. Oh, wall upstairs of state of New Jersey titles and certifications and the whole bunch of stuff. Every time there's a different training, I'm, I'm being sent up there, but it's allowed me to meet some, you know, awesome people from, um, you know, my entire duration of my career. So to be able to be, you know, day to day, just work along with some really magnificent and phenomenal people through there was an ongoing need for youth that may have not had insurance, who may have not had, um, these different things. And some families didn't want to be workers and therapists coming in and out of the home on the day-to-day basis. You know, your neighbors see that classic van or car outside of the, you know, drive and they're asking questions. And so I kind of heard the youth that I work with on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, underneath of the company I work with, we have access at any time to about three to 400 youth. And I've been blessed to be able to kind of go and talk to each one of them in their different homes and programs and different things like that. And that's that's always the thing I would hear is that, you know, we drive in the car with the van that has the sticker on the back or, you know, yeah. the workers outside of the home. And it was like, you want to know what skills, these, uh, these, this, this mentorship, for lack of better terminology, and yeah. push them to where they need to go. Um, right. Exactly, exactly. And to be able to meet with- Able to do it without everybody pointing their fingers and going, oh, I know what you're doing. That, um, <clears throat> excuse me, isn't changing every six to nine months, you know, and and, uh, a constant thing amongst social workers is that turnover is so strong and that, you know, you as soon as you get a chance to know someone, they're gone. And, you know, I I saw that need and I said, you know, I've done so much work for the state of New Jersey. I've done so much work for my organization and different agencies across the state. It's time for me to be able to step out on my own and kind of see 
what the youth need themselves and be able to provide that platform. So that's why I wanted to do the adolescent and young adult life coaching. So what do you, what does that look like with your, with your company? How are you going to um, be different than others? So one, there's in the state of New Jersey, there's not a platform for life coaching that's specific to adolescents and teens. You know, a lot of times when people hear life coaching, you're talking about adults, you know, people who might want to make major career decisions and changes, but no one really wants to hone in on the genesis of when this takes place, which is at that pivotal age between, you know, 16, 17, and 24, and 25. That's when, you know, you hopefully can bear down and make those appropriate decisions that'll give you that career choice that when you're 36, 37, 45, you're in a position of comfort, right? And so, so that's where our company, I apologize, I'm fighting. I was just got finished fighting pneumonia. So I'm like uh, in the brinks of getting my, uh, getting back to where I need to be. But um, um, a lot of the young men and young women that I work with, even obtaining a state ID, um, original birth certificate, how do I get a chance to find my um, social security card? Do I know my social security number? Sometimes it's small things like that that we take for granted that a lot of parents are coaching their youth on and then they're not giving they're not getting those uh, life skills that are needed. And that's what I really would love our company to be able to do is to have the youth be able to get their state ID, you know, practice their driver exam, motivate them to make their first purchase for that car, making sure that that first car might not be a BMW or Mercedes if you can't afford it at this time. Right, right. Is it what is it to establish credit, you know, and, and kind of hone down on, like I said, all those life skills that sometimes we might escape community resource parents, it doesn't matter a lot of times those conversations get missed. And so that's where defining moments will come in to be able to help, you know, educate our young adults. So how are they going to um, an expense that comes with it? So yeah. how will these, how will you, these young people who don't have anything be able to work with you? Group of advisors, and we talked about insurance, but entertained. I do have a um, insurance because a lot of times these young adults don't have insurance. We would actually be trying to help them establish to get insurance. You know, what is it to fill out a 3560 plan in the state of New Jersey so that if you have a caregiver or a guardian who's not there that you can get your own insurance. So it will all be sliding scale based on what these young adults might have or, you know, what their parents are able to contribute at the time. But we're more focused on the success of those young adults and those stories. The funding will come as it, as, as it needs. To. So if I can ask, and if it's inappropriate, you can just say, I, I can't talk about that but um I've I aged out myself and as well we were foster we were a foster family and what we would always hear was the very worst thing that could happen is for a child to go to a group home now I don't necessarily believe that because I've heard of some amazing group homes so can you share with me some of the of the advantages and strengths that some of these homes have of course I mean to get stabilization and to get out um, is the idea should always be to go in or to Colorado. Um, you know, a lot of times other system of cares fail because we're not worrying about starting to transition a youth as soon as they walk through the door. 
it should be a planning process of getting them out. Um, I think that, you know, I have established some of the most creative things in group homes. I think anywhere, the group homes that I've, you know, run would have recording studios for the youth and sensory rooms and gymnasiums built inside of them. And you still might have a youth come down and say, I'm bored yeah. to death. You know, it's right. group homes. Um, okay, you're good. Sure. Um, group homes, when done correctly, it's not about all the bells and the whistles, even the services that are offered inside. It's about being able to link those young adults to the community resources. So once they leave, they have sure. an amazing statistic. Um, but, you know, we still have to follow up with those youth in three years and five years and seven years and 10 years and see how they're pro progressing past that point. But I think community is what builds a youth, not necessarily the actual group home, the facility, the building, what kind of uh, linens are on the bed. You know what I mean? That, those are great, um, you know, but at the end of the day, that's not what creates, in my opinion, that's not what creates success. Um, and a lot of those young adults and, and like yourself, um, I have, you know, I was actually really inspired. I got a chance to hear Melissa's story through your previous, um, uh, you know, I think it was like a forum you guys had had and it, it was phenomenal to listen and hear about her experience and how she wants to have a family and how she wants to do all these things. And, but as you listen to her story, she'll even say that there were great people there with phenomenal intentions, but it didn't land. It didn't stick at that time. The compliments really weren't there for her. You know, it didn't land. It's hard to receive it at that time. So even relationships sometimes that might be great in that moment or might not be great in that moment, you don't appreciate till 15, 20 years down the line when you're like, wow, when that one counselor said this or that one person said that, um, um, so I think it's a lot of work. It's a lot of psychological. It's a lot of therapy um, that goes along with it. But to answer your question in short, I really believe that it's about making sure that all youth are plugged into community. That's where the success lies because they're going to leave your doors one day and they have to be able to have something that is going to last. They can always call you on the phone. They can always, hey, Mr. Kirk, how you doing? <coughs> Excuse me. How's the family? How's this? How's that? But at the end of the day, they have to have that community. They have to be able to rechange that mindset and regroup that mindset to take them out of that place and give them those coping skills that they need in those dark hours. Continuing to grow that community or will it be <laughs> um, people won't know who's in the group? Will you do some sort of a, like meetings where they can meet up and build each other up? Um, but we will be linking in with community partners. Um, you know, I've been blessed to be sure. I do not know why so many trucks are going by on a Saturday afternoon. It's okay. <laughs> I guess it's Amazon. It's probably Amazon delivery. There you go. Amazon is everywhere now. Yeah. Um, but no, it will be 100% discreet um, and make sure that they have that community going on. But at the end of the day, it really is about, you can put the, you know, the $100,000 job in front of them. It's not going to matter if they walk out five days from there because they don't think they're good enough for the atmosphere. So, it's, it's, it, but it will be discreet, definitely. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. So, I mean, um, I've had so many young men who have come into the program, like I said, feeling beat down, feeling uh, disappointed, feeling that nobody cares and wants about them, you know, wants for them. And, you know, uh, youth that have been through failed adoptions, um, you know, which double trauma you know that's there's no other way to describe that but double trauma when you have a failed adoption and um they have left you know 
defining moments and left, you know, our, our life coaching and, and they have gone on to just do phenomenal things from, you know, saying, Hey, I'll never be able to pass my driver's test to driving away in their own car, you know, and being able to have a full-time job and signing up and enrolling in college and just making a future for themselves. And, um, you know, so those are the kind of moments that none of us as professionals can put a price tag on. You can't, that's those are the things where every day you go to bed and you have a smile on your face and so there's countless stories um i'm actually going to have um i'm not sure if you got a chance to look at the website but i think on the should have this note in front of me but i think in about a month or so's time about a month and a half time we're going to have us uh an actual success story forum a panel with all young adults who have been um in the new jersey system of care um, probably some other youth outside of New Jersey, um, talk about what it was to go through this system, how they stayed motivated and how they persevered, you know, in, in, in a really difficult space. I'd love to share that forum, um, on the YouTube channel, if you're open oh, to that. Thank you. That would be great. We would appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I'm tiny right now, but I have some pretty big... <laughs> plans so that's how we are too i mean it's it's just kind of i think i just started the the entire platform probably about a week and a half ago oh wow yeah so it's really new um but where, where i'm really excited is that i as a professional doing this already have so many different separate connections and access to things and so I, i'm really excited to make it move outside of the state platform and really excited to kind of bring a lot of light you know like i said we don't have much light either but being able to bring a lot of light to to businesses like your own and so where we can all flourish together and and as as many youth as we can touch as many people and young adults that we can try to mend some past trauma and build new bridges that's what it's all about well and that's what i was wondering about success is a lot of people you know, if they haven't gone to college, do not feel successful. But I don't think that that's the only way a person can be successful. Okay. So if you have people who come to you who college isn't necessarily where they see themselves going, maybe, I don't want to say anyone can't learn because I absolutely believe in a, in a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. Right. But some people, you know, there are people who go to college and get their degrees and they're baristas at Starbucks because for whatever reason, you know, and there are people who don't go to college and get on allison.com and learn coding and end up working for Microsoft. Right. So. Right. College is not um, an end all be all and it, it really doesn't define success is measured, in my opinion, success is measured on a person achieving their old goals, not necessarily what goals people put in place for them. Um, even as a professional, I will never make a plan, a case management plan or um, a transitional plan without that young adult or that person with there with the pen in their hand or typing and saying, this is where I want to go. Um, you know, you can suggest how someone will get to that platform, but you never want to suggest what platform they go to. And that's how, in my opinion, success is defined. Um, you know, a young man who might have a learning deficit or a young lady who might um, have had an IEP her whole life may not be able to go and sit in a classroom with adult ADHD for 
six hours, you know, or four hour lectures, you know, that's not a reality. Um, but like you said, they may be able to tap into a certification course or they may be able to do something that helps them and they still need. Like them. Melissa, she's going to beauty school. I yes. Know. Yeah, it was just Melissa with her going to cosmetology and beauty school like she was talking about. That is major success. You know, you made your goal up and you got to where you got to your destination. And that's all that matters. How about low points? What are some of the points that, that you've seen some of the worst things? Oh, man. Um, as a professional, a lot. Um, a lot. Uh, I probably couldn't even put into words. Um, you know, some of the things that I've seen over my career. Um, like a lot of depression, I'm assuming. Depression, anxiety, self-mutilations, you know, suicides, you know, unfortunately, you know, when you work kind of ground zero in this field, for lack of better terms, there's not much on a day-to-day -day basis you don't see. You can take that lowest hour and find a way to grow from that opportunity. You know, it's taking that dark moment and that dark time and being able to elevate from that experience and, and learn from it and not, you know, replicate it. As long as you can learn from any moment, you're good. Well, and I love that you said elevate because that's what, that's what Age Out Rise Up is about, is moving from being in that very, very down space. So yes. what are some really quick, just like, if you were going to give three points on how you would um, give someone vision who's in such a dark space, where would they start with kind of being able to see vision for themselves? So that's a phenomenal question. Uh, to answer the question, there's really no cookie cutter method. Every youth is completely different and you have to kind of put yourself on that level to find out what it is that they truthfully need. I could say one youth um, for motivation might, might need just some rebuilding and rebranding of their own self-esteem, right? They might need to elevate in that level. Um, another youth might have to um, be able to bury some past labeling that was put on them by a caregiver or family member, right? So you have to find self-worth in that instance. Um, so there's really no cookie cutter method. And then some youth sadly just need exposure, right? Some youth haven't been exposed to a different opportunity to be able to see a different way. So, uh, you know, it, it's really no cookie cutter method. It's all about individuality and making sure that every youth that comes through, that's why building that case plan is so important because we need to know your goals. And then the more that we talk, we find those hindrances to you reaching those goals and try to minimize that so that you can see your own vision. I am. I mean, that, that's excellent, excellent stuff. I'm going to use it when I promote you guys. No, thank you. <laughs> um, the recording studio that you have, why is it that you chose to do that? Believe it or not, it was a, a request from the youth. Um, I am not a major fan of every uh, young adult saying that they want to be a hip-hop artist or them putting um, you know, all their eggs in that basket. What I have found though, is that youth that are able to compose their own music and their own lyrics becomes a supplemental version of therapy. Um, you know, They actually can be able to put in the words sometimes that they can't say to others. So that was the thinking behind the studio. Yeah, I completely agree. I was just wondering where, where you were going with that because in the 11 or so interviews that I've done recently, Every single person who has risen 
out of this situation has some sort of artistic outlet. Wow. And so I, it's interesting to me that so many government policies and schools and things like that are, are just canceling out the arts. Like that's the first thing to go when that to me is a great equalizer because you don't have to be from, it does help. It definitely helps right. to be from money and to have these things in order to, you know, to get started and to have classes. But when classes are offered for free, it's an equalizer, you know, that even people who, I had a little girl in, um, in our school program and her mom came to me and she said, you, you didn't know her story, but we moved here from another state because she'd been so abused by someone. He'll be spending the rest of his life in prison. And she didn't talk. I mean, the tears rolling down her mother's face were just, wow. and because it gives them a voice, you know, it lets them also step outside themselves. So I think that is something that is so, so great to have, regardless of whether or not it's a podcast and letting youth just vent. You know, maybe not everything goes out, but, right. but just letting them vent within that little box mm. is really good for them. So it, it is. And, and that's where I, you know, I bring up uh, my best friend. Um, if you ever get a chance to look over his work, he's called Ambition the Poet. Um, and one of his, I think his first book, he has five books now, if I'm not mistaken. And his first book was called Revenge of the Foster Child. And he has a... Um, poem called Revenge of the Foster Child. And when he was writing, I was a little, you know, I, I didn't quite understand, you know, some of the, because he gets very, uh, you know, into his terminology and some things go almost violent. There's a lot of hate and fury behind it. And it made me realize, was like, wow, he's using this platform even at, you know, the age of 30 something to be able to still do therapy. And when, when, because I'm, I'm, I'm on the sidelines and I'm still coaching them on, but I'm like, you know, hey, is this the right, you know, you want to uplift, you want to motivate, you know, you don't want to necessarily tear down. And when he went to go perform it at different group homes, and then when he went to perform it, um, he actually did a panel of his own a couple months ago in front of um, a lot of different circuit judges who were involved in family court and things of that nature. I expected it to take. I really did. I said, you know, here's this. But but when people understood that his therapy and his words were behind it, it was met by such strong applause because it is how he elevates and rises in his own words. Sometimes you can't say it in, in regular dialogue. You have to say it in this way. And it completely changed my mind on it. And it's been years. And that was one of the factors also I... I I opened up the studios at the group homes because it was, even if you have to be rough in your words, even if you have to say some things that are painful, even if it's not as uplifting as we would like it to be, it still allows you to get that off of your chest and allow that to go out into the atmosphere. You're no longer locking that in, holding it inside. You're allowing to, you're, you're expressing yourself. And I would take that all day long versus exploding or imploding. Right. I, I actually, I have a blog post called Anger is My Birthright. And oh, wow. it is, it completely is, it's, it's both about the experience of being a minority and like abuse. And I'm a nine on the ACEs scale. So, um, so it has all of those things. But in my real life, 
that is the way, like in my real life, I am like nice neighborhood mama. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's who I am and it's who I've cultivated because I do not live in a diverse area at all. Mm -hmm. I live in, I, like all you have to do is say, oh, the brown girl. And people, oh, wow. um, you know, that's wow. where, where I live. And, and there's so many stereotypes to fight down just being a minority. And then on top of that, coming from such crazy background, you know, the first thing, if I lose my temper, someone's going to think is, ooh, the angry black woman. Exactly. And so, so, and the reality is, is it's just the truth. You've got to have that place where you can be honest and be vulnerable and be raw. But in the real world, you also have to be presentable and respectable. And I love it. That's just, that's the thing I think that our, our kids need to learn. And it's not, you know, and a lot of kids will be like, F that, that's not fair, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's not fair. You're right. right. It's not fair, but it's reality. You know, I, so many people quote Martin Luther King and they always mm. say, I have a dream. And I think, but are you reading his entire speech there? Because when he says, then now I'm going to address my own people. And I'm gonna say the way that we rise is to repay their bitterness with kindness, you know? Mm. And those things, they are true. They are true. Right. Like people sit back and people are more likely to listen to me in my voice because I don't scare them. And so it's an, it's an interesting thing because I, I'm not, I don't hide the truth. I just try to present it not really wrapped up in a package, but in a way that people can, can perceive it. And it always is wrapped up with that. And how do I uplift? Yes, this is my story. And yes, it is tragic. And yes, 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 yes. But I climbed out of that. And wow. so can you. Right. So I have a question for you because I generally tend to um, believe that the people who can best help are the people who've experienced things themselves. Right. And you've not experienced things yourself. Mm -hmm. Not that, not foster care, not, right. not that kind of trauma. So what is it, um, how your experiences, I know you have a lot of professional experience, but the emotional experience that um, brings you to the table. And I think we talked about it before I hit record, but you can just, if you'd expand on trauma that. Trauma either, um, to be able to look at that box from the outside um, gives me a unique view and to hear sometimes I think a lot of the things I hear from people that have been through foster care is that they feel like when they're going through that journey you're going through it when you're by yourself you know there's no one else there when there can be a person to say not only are you not the only person you're not the only person on your block you know what I mean and there's there's four or five others and here's a platform right here's here's a way to be able to discuss that here's a way to be able to talk about the common things that you hate the common things that you love the the common disappointments around trying to get in contact with with your biologicals and when you meet your biologicals how you have to prepare for that like that is a major thing and how you come out of that it's going to take years of either therapy or regathering because what you thought was and wasn't so even though I haven't been through this um, or haven't been a foster child myself, working with probably 
in the thousands of young adults um, during my career doesn't allow me not to not hear that pain and not hear that story. It just allows me to be a shepherd more to elevate that story um, so that the world can hear. And what I, what I see from just, just from listening to you in this brief time, but there some people really are those heroes. They really can jump in, get down into it. I think that a lot of times why we put up a, a guard and say, you know what, you don't know our pain is because a lot of people who are quote unquote helping are going home to their normal lives. They're turning off their day at 5 p.m and are reading books about what we need instead of experiencing what we really need. But I think a lot of people in foster care, uh, I was just talking to a woman yesterday who sent me tons of private messages and she was just telling me all of her relationship problems. And she's like, I always seek out people like me so that we can match our traumas together. And, mm. um, and I just wanted to say, you know, I don't, think and I'm not an expert on this I know from, I just know from my own experience I married a man from a very normal traditional home life you right. know and I think that that's part of what helps you is by having somebody who's willing to understand who's willing to be there for you in your pain mm -hmm. um and not exploit it and right. also not you know like not turn it into a trophy situation Oh, I've done so much, which I think a lot of times these yes. very young social workers, they have the best heart in the world, mm -hmm. but they really do turn off at five and take their pictures, especially with their minority kids, you know, mm -hmm. here yeah. I am saving the world. And it's insulting because as foster youth, you are already labeled, really labeled, like special mm -hmm. needs immediately, slow immediately. And people are thinking, you can't help yourself. Right. You know, and so I think that there are those rare people. Um, and that, that's something that I just, I can see people going, well, you're interviewing somebody who's not a former foster youth, you know, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. And I'm like, but, but if you're in the trenches, mm -hmm. Then, then, then you've got you've got your stripes, you know. Right, and and sometimes for those, and I completely agree with you, um, on multiple fronts, there are many professionals who, at five o'clock, can turn that off, um, and go to their normal lives. Um, I don't have that capability because you know it's in my daily life with my wife. It's in my daily life with my best friend, and um, you know they suffered multiple traumas that I won't even go into, um, you know, on a recorded line, but that it's lifelong. Um, and you know, and, and you help them persevere and you, you wear a little bit of that pain with them every time that they go through a new journey and every time that they reestablish this and every time they open up a new wound, you know, or open up an old wound, it, it resurfaces if it just happened yesterday. And, you know, that could happen 20 years down the line. You know, me and my friend were talking probably, I think it was last year. And, you know, we were going through some therapy and I was helping him with some stuff. And he was just like this old pain and this old frustration and this, this trauma had resurfaced. I, I've, I've felt that with him, you know, and it was like, I, I was like, all right. 
and and he went back to not being able to sleep. The nightmares come again, and you know, so it it never stops. It continues to come, and that trauma is always there. Um, one thing that you said that that I cannot applaud enough is the trophy. Um, you know, is is not wearing the trauma as a badge. You can't let the trauma define you. You have to be able to move past it. Try to use it as a lesson tool gain understanding from it and and know that you're a survivor right but never wear it as my my friend and i use it uh, what does he call it weaponizing his victimization and it is it is a powerful powerful thing when you weaponize your trauma because it makes it counterproductive in the way that who could help who can get past if you're weaponizing your victimization no one can be able to get to you and reach you because you're guarded in in every which direction um so you know but you're right i mean not not having that false past foster child um experience in history um i can see where it's difficult but it, i've still been able to through my entire life and through working with people been able to gain a lot of insight and knowledge and 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 carry unfortunately a lot there's been a lot of sleepless nights you know even though you try to 58 you can't erase that as soon as you come in your door and those true professionals as much as you would you say you can there's there's no coming numb to, to you know watching a youth self-mutilate or attempt suicide or you know as a professional you walk into somebody's home and they're being um you know molested or raped and, and you can't you can't erase those memories as hard as you try to um and so you know it's difficult um, but it's why we're here because one, we want to bring justice and then we also want to bring healing. And so that's what it's about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know what the aces are? Yes. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. I am not a fan of the aces because okay. for that reason that it does kind of give you a ticket and say for you, all of these yes. things have happened to you. Mm. Now go have a pity party for the rest of your life which I'm sorry, I'm a very blunt person. And that's, that's how I see it. And it's like, why would you, and then they're like, well, but the next, the next episode is all about resilience. And like, but they need to be the same episode because you can't just hand people that. A lot of people, like a majority of people are going to take that and go, I don't have to do anything. I do not have to, I'm not even capable of doing anything. And right. I think that is different. That is different in what you're doing from what I'm hearing and what a lot of people do is they say, no, you're not capable, so let us do it for you. A hundred percent. And then they do a really crappy job of doing it for them. And it's the a cycle you know, over yeah. and over because it's like, oh, but but we understand you'll never be able to to rent your own apartment. So let us give you this so that you can, and then you're going to have children. And then, you know, when you are not good to your children, mm. you know, then we'll understand because this is what your trauma is. When it's like, oh, yeah. no, you need to teach them that it can stop with them. You need yes. to teach them a growth mindset that they can be, they can achieve anything, you know, mm. and that is not what I see being done. I see victimization all over the place. Yes. And, yeah. Uh, you have hit this on the head. I mean, you really have. And, and it comes through all of your work that I read and that I've been researching and 
and I love it because it's it's so true. Um, you know, I'm not even, and a lot of people, you know, they get upset me when I say this because I do have a lot of staff uh, who are therapists, who are psychiatrists, who are psychologists. I'm not a firm believer in diagnosis. Um, you know, I believe that that kind of puts you, it, it's, it's a labelization. Um, I have anxiety, I have depression, I have ADHD, I have this, I have that. And I get the, you know, the uh, chemical differences in the brain and I've done all this neurological studies and, and I get it. But once you label someone like that, are they able to overcome it? You know, are they, are, are now, they, are they now living a season? Well, I'm sorry, let me back that up. Should they have been living in a season of depression or now are they lifelong depressed, right? Because they took diagnoses, they ran with it, they got medication, and now, oh, I suffer with depression. Well, your depression, even depending on what it could have been, could have been situational depression, which is a different diagnosis that these doctors might give. Uh, but now, no, now you've categorized yourself as having depression and you need a pill every day. And for the rest of your life, you feel like when in reality, it could have been seasonal. You, you could have tried to overcome it and, and done, you know, meditation, if you believe in that or different things to try to build yourself up out of it um, in a season's time, not a lifelong time. Well, that's the thing about um, so many kids are diagnosed with ADHD and, and having been a foster parent, I know you walk into that first meeting and they're like, oh, your kid's locking me out of the office. Obviously they have ADHD. And I'm like, or maybe they've seen entirely too many therapists that they haven't believed in, they haven't had a relationship with, and they don't want another one, so they're going to lock you out of the office. There Maybe you go. The reality is, is that most of these kids have executive functioning issues because they were busy learning to survive when everybody else was learning the basics. There you know? you go. This is a huge thing, and like on all of these pages that I'm on, these people are, oh, I have ADHD, I was diagnosed, when I'm like, do you though? Do you right. really? Because... I mean, I have every symptom of ADHD. I am scattered. I am artistic. I'm all over the board. <laughs> but when I need to focus, when I have mm -hmm. a week before launching, I'm freaking focused, you know? Tunnel vision. <laughs> and, and they say that's part of ADHD. And I'm like, that's part of surviving. Right. You know? So, like, they have, I read this amazing book about um, how kids learn, how children learn. And it took a study of these kids who, before kindergarten, had an experience where they went into, um, they, were, they were taught things like how to read, and these are, these are very poor children. So that before kindergarten, they're taken in there. They're taught their alphabet and how to count to 100 and all of these things. And then they're left alone, you know. And then they come back in second grade, and these kids are still falling behind. And it's like, why, when they showed so much promise? with this early childhood education program. It's because, you know, their, their parents were not sitting home reading to them the cat in the hat. You know, their right. parents might not even been home. They right. might have been thinking, I'm not gonna think about the cat in the hat when I'm trying to open up a can of SpaghettiOs, mm -hmm. right? So these pre-diagnoses are absolutely unfair and absolutely right. limiting. Right. And that's why, you know, when, when you asked me before, I said that there's really no cookie cutter method. Some youth just might need exposure. 
You know, like, it, I, I can't tell you how many young adults I've worked with, you remove them out of their environment and show them something new. And they're like, they gravitate towards it. They own that environment. And then the next thing you know, they have taken it over. It is their own. All they had to do was see it. All they had to know that there was a different side. There, I mean, there was something else on the other side of that fence that they had never seen before. And it was like, boom. And now the sky is their limit. Um, and, you know, those are the easy ones. You know, those are the easy sessions. Those are the ones where it's like, no, there's a whole, there's a whole other world over there. Go own it and, and take it off and ride it to the sunset. And they do it. And they are just completely successful, but they just needed to be able to see a different way of life. Um, right. So some other youth that need other things. But yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I could not agree with you more. Like sometimes it's misery is bliss, right? Like they just, for a lot of people, because they've never been exposed to anything else, they think it's normal. A mm. lot of foster kids just want to go home, want to go home, want to go home when it's like, the chances of the cycle breaking when you go home mm -hmm. are not, not, you have much, you have much stronger outcome. And that is a very controversial idea, okay. you know, because everybody is reunification, reunification, reunification. And I'm looking at it going, if we're talking six generations of bad things, mm -hmm. is reunification always the best option? No. <laughs> so, it's a hundred percent. A lot of times it's not. And, and that's why they have so many statistics and it doesn't matter what state you go to of uh, that aging out, um, you know, population when they get to a certain, you know, the homeless, they, they go homeless, unfortunately, because one, there wasn't enough family time put in. There was a lot of time put in with the young adult. Um, you know, to give them therapy, to give them resources, to give them the things that they need. But we never took the time to address the elephant in the room. And that was probably some inadequate parenting at that time. And how do we start that? So, I mean, realistically, it should be 50-50, right? Like as much as you put into the youth should be put into the family. And that's the, that's the entire duration of treatment. That starts from day one till that, the way that youth transitions. Um, and a lot of times, sadly, I won't say a lot of times, but there are many times where that plan for reunification just is not feasible. And we see that our youth go to like supervised transitional living, which we call New Jersey or independent living programs or stuff through the, uh, you know, the housing hub where these youth go in and they get their own apartments and they flourish. You know what I mean? They, they, they completely flourish and they don't need any additional support from um, resource family, community family, biological family, they have become their own and their own sole proprietorship, right? They, they function on their own and they manage it. And that's where we all went. You know, that's where we all went. I tell my, uh, my boys that one of, one of my homes has, uh, in the last year, had eight failed adoptions. Um, young, eight young men who all came from eight failed adoptions, that double trauma we were talking about. They want nothing more than to reunify. Nothing more than to reunify because they have that urge for acceptance from, you know, these, these foster parents or these adoptive parents, rather. But what happens is, as we found out statistically, they would go back 
an argument might spark up. They kick the young adult out of the home. Then what happens? That young adult now is a statistic as being homeless. Um, so what we've done is we've become savvy and said, hey, still be with your family. Go visit them wherever. You want to spend the night, spend the night. But here's your key to your own apartment, your own place. Nobody can take that away from you, ever. So if you get into an argument, you get in that stale place with them, you guys both have your own separate dwellings to be at, and you don't become a statistic. Like a real family. Yep, 100%. 100%. I'm like, I, I know what Thanksgiving's like. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, 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 the inevitable happens at some point. And, you know, right. they go and crash on a paramour, you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, whatever pronoun they choose, home. Yeah. And after that, they get in an argument with that other person. And then that person kicks them out. And then after a while, it just becomes a vicious cycle of where can I sleep tonight? Yeah. It really comes down to empowering people to take control of their own lives. Right. You know? And that is something that they believe they cannot do. Often. Right. 100%. So, so that's, that's what it comes down to. Do people get in touch with you? Your company is specifically called? Uh, so the company is called Defining Moments Life Coaching. Um, and the website is www.definingmomentslc.com dot com which is just lifecoaching.com um and i suggest that everybody if you can go through the website to um reach out to us we have links there for scheduling to do um you know interviews or scheduling to do um you know speaking engagements and then obviously for one-on-one -on -one sessions with youth um you know in particular right now obviously because the way the world is we're doing all of our sessions virtually um, so, you know, people can have their initial consultation there with myself, um, and we're doing everything virtually at this time, but they can reach us at that www.definingmomentslc.com. Wonderful. And do you have, um, social media? You, you're only serving New Jersey as of now, correct? No, no. So as of right now, since we're doing virtually, I will be meeting with youth, um, anywhere in the world that I can, uh, you know, we can talk English to one another and <laughs> major language barrier. Uh, happy to work with anyone um, in the world. That is excellent. Thank you so much. And really, thank you for your heart and just being willing to, I mean, it feels, it seems like it's your calling. Oh, thank you. So, and thank that you. is, there's kind of nothing more fulfilling, I think, than, than finding your calling and driving towards that so i really really appreciate this oh anytime and i cannot wait to link up um with you as well and have you on our panel for you having uh you on our new jersey team and uh you awesome. can open and give us some information that would be wonderful yeah all right thank you so much bye-bye all right thank you bye-bye